Today, we're talking about what the media did to us, all of us, part three on the special edition of the Doc Washburn Show. Welcome to the Voice of the Resistance with Doc Washburn. We're the show that pushes back against the Uniparty and lets you in on the news that traditional talk radio is all too often afraid to talk about. This is episode 337 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show for Thursday, February 2nd, 2023. Just so you understand where I'm coming from, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. More evidence comes out all the time that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. Also, I will never call Joe Biden president because it's obvious the last U.S. presidential election was stolen. I will never pretend a man can become a woman, and I will never forget about the January 6th political prisoners most Republican politicians refuse to even mention. And August 8th, 2022, the day the Biden regime's secret police conducted an unprecedented and unconstitutional raid on the home of a former president of the United States is a day that shall live in infamy. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashburn.com. Click on the button that says Become a Patron. Also, please remember to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Okay, the theme of today's show is what the media did to us, all of us, part three. Now, a great mainstream media reporter, a guy who was with the New York, New York Times for many years, and won Pulitzer Prizes. Jeff Gerth has written a four-part series for the Columbia Journalism Review, which is the premier periodical covering journalism in this country. And the four-part article is, enti- is entitled, The Press Versus the President. Now, I've shared with you part one. I've shared with you part two. Before I get into part three, I owe it to you to tell you the reviews it is getting. The great author Jack Cashill over at World Net Daily says, New report, the press versus the president, a win for Trump. The Columbia Journalism Review report is, quote, absolutely devastating on how casually, frequently, recklessly, and eagerly The press lied on Russiagate, unquote, quoting Glenn Greenwald there. Next, we have Byron York, the great Byron York, chief political correspondent over at Washington Examiner and a Fox News contributor who says, here's the Jeff Gerth Columbia Journalism Review series on press coverage of Trump Russia, very damning, especially so for the New York Times where Girth was a reporter for 29 years. Now, we have a quote also from President Trump himself. The fake news media like CNN, MSDNC, which is sometimes referred to as MSNBC, the Washington Compost, which is sometimes referred to as the Washington Post. And the failing New York Times are doing really, really badly and closing up shop all over the place. CNN is shuttering its longtime headquarters building and the money-losing 
Washington Post is being peddled all over to see whether or not somebody wants to buy it. In the meantime, they're firing massive numbers of people. Not reporting with credibility has its consequences. The future of the fake news looks bleak, and that's a positive thing. But beware the Marxists and communists, which are well represented in our government. Many of them got there by fake news. So we have to stop it. We have to get back to normal. Thank you. All right. Now, the Media Research Center put together a compilation, a little over two minutes long, of a bunch of these knuckleheads, CNN, MSNBC, all over the place, talking about how this was it for Trump. The Trump-Russia thing. People going to jail. The noose is tightening. All that stuff. Now, I could play you the whole two minutes and 20 seconds, whatever it is. But since this is an audio medium, you have to guess who was saying what. So what I did was, because I think you deserve to know who these reprobates are, who these scalawags are. I went in and edited into 28 different sound bites. So I can tell you before each one who this is. Because I owe it to you. You need to know who these ne'er-do-wells are. So I spent the extra time on that, and we pass the savings on to you. So without any further ado, before we actually get into part three, of the press versus the president. You need to hear it. First of all, the potato, Brian Stelter, formerly with CNN. Does the public understand just how much trouble the president is in? Well, no, because he really wasn't in any trouble. And no, because nobody watches CNN. Next, New York Times columnist Michelle Goldberg on ABC This Week. To believe that the president isn't compromised requires such a leap of faith. No, no, you're the one doing the leap of faith. And again, one of the things Jeff Gerth keeps on pointing out in this Columbia Journalism Review article is these people absolutely, positively refuse to go back and correct the record when they're showed to be 100% wrong. Now, not each little clip had a name on it. So here's some dullard on CNN. I think we have all the proof we need of a scandal that's uh, arguably worse than Watergate. Now, the problem there was the first two words. I think we have all... No, no, I think. No, you're not thinking. You're a true believer. And that's why I call you some dullard, because your name wasn't on the screen. The potato... Brian Stelter, formerly of CNN, lying again. The U.S. president possibly working for the Russians. Possibly an unwitting pawn. Possibly you're an unwitting pawn to this day. No, no, I'm not going to accuse Brian Stelter of being witting on anything. No, 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 no. He's unwitting. Another airhead on CNN, unnamed. Now here's what the president said when asked if he was a secret Russian agent. First of all, how could you ask him such a stupid question? He probably had 
a response somewhere along those lines. This guy, uh, been on CNN for a long time, uh, Jake Tapper. The great one, Mark Levin, calls him fake Tapper. The president did not directly answer the question. That's because it was beneath the dignity of the office. You knucklehead. Here's another dimwit on CNN. Why not just say no if that's the answer? Because that lends dignity to the question. And you certainly don't deserve that. Another simpleton on CNN. We have dramatic evidence of collusion. No, you don't. You're lying. And that's okay. Because that's what you get paid to do. Okay, uh, this time we have Chris Cuomo on CNN, otherwise known as Fredo. You remember? Fredo? See, because he's a stupid brother. Andrew actually got elected uh, governor. Chris was on CNN, got fired, is on some other network now. So he reminds people a lot of the, the you know, the Cuomos remind people of the Corleones from the, the Godfather. Anyway, here's Fredo. Smart? Wait, wait. Like everybody says. No, wait. Like dumb, I'm smart, and I want respect. Oh, um, that was the real Fredo. <laughs> Here's Chris Cuomo. There is tons of proof of potential collusion. Just lying through his teeth. This is CNN, and we lie. Speaking of which, Jim Acosta, accosting. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, when she was press secretary in the White House. How, how is it not collusion? How is all of that not collusion? Because we reject the premise, because you're all just making it up. Dan Rather, remember how he lost his job? Lying about uh, George W. Bush's military record or lack thereof? Well, here he is lying on MSNBC. A political hurricane is out there at sea for him. We'll call it Hurricane Vladimir, if you will. What do I? What if? What if? What if I won't? Vladimir, if you will. No. What if I won't? If you will, well, give me a break. Next, a guy you've never heard of, probably Donnie Deutsch, over there in MSNBC. Donald Trump knows the noose is tightening. The noose is tightening. That's the first one we've heard say the noose is tightening. Now, why do you think? That they fantasize about somebody committing violence. Why is this the analogy they're using? A method of execution. I don't know, but here's Mika Brzezinski. The noose is tightening. Um, well, loosen it a little bit. I mean, are you are you uncomfortable? Oh, 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 she's implying it's tightening on Trump. <laughs> All right, some other dunce on MSNBC. The, the noose is tightening, if you will. Now, what if I won't? What if I won't? Yet another dunce on CNN fantasizing about the noose. The noose is tightening around the president. You know, I guess they're all getting talking points from the same place, right? And CNN is wondering why they have the worst ratings now in, what, 18 years? Another CNN bimbo 
talking about Vonus. The noose is tightening. Uh, no. Wait a minute, Mika again about the noose? And I think they're shocked that the noose is tightening and that people might go to jail. But they're not shocked that you're a one-trick pony. <laughs> See that little, what I did there. Uh, Paul Wood is the world affairs correspondent for the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation. And, of course, just because, you know, he's uh, from overseas, just because he's a Brit doesn't mean he's not going to get with the program, right? He knows he and POTUS are going to prison. Oh, sure. When was that supposed to happen? Joy Behar. Talk about being unwitting. I don't know that it's ever occurred to her that she gets things wrong on a regular basis, but here is... uh, Actually, she's fronting a band. She is the uh, uh, the vocalist. Uh, the band is called Joy Behar and her trained seals. Well, I think they're all going to end up together in prison, and maybe that's a good thing. Oh, my thing. God. <laughs> I guess you have to be a lib to be in the audience there at The View. Well, who would want to be in the audience unless she was a lib? Trained seals. Whenever she says something about conservatives, you know, the applause sign goes on. And they're off and running. Ali Velshi over at MSNBC. I think he was the guy reporting from the scene of a riot in Minneapolis that was mostly peaceful as the building is on fire right behind him. Um, Ali wants to talk about the walls also. The walls appear to be closing in on the president. Appear? What, what was the appearance there? Bob Woodward, MSNBC. Over 50 years ago, doing Watergate. What's he doing now? The investigative walls are closing in. Which is odd because Bob Woodward is quoted in the Press versus the President, the four-part series from Columbia Journalism Review, as saying that uh, the press really didn't do a good job on the Trump-Russia collusion hoax reporting. Fascinating. Here's another knucklehead on MSNBC. He feels the walls closing in. Your mother feels the walls closing in. Uh, Nicole Wallace, MSNBC. Uh, It's a familiar refrain. The walls are closing in. Just no self-reflection, no self-awareness at all. John Harwood, MSNBC. Trump resigns, quote, once Mueller closes in on him and the family. If I may quote the great philosopher, Dr. Phil, how'd that work out for you? Uh, Okay. Now, Joe Scarborough, for a number of years, masqueraded as a conservative Republican member of Congress. He represented District 1 of Florida. That is the uh, district that Matt Gates represents now. And back in the day when Florida didn't have as many people as it has now, his district went from the Florida-Alabama line, the westernmost point of the Florida panhandle, all the way over to the bridge between Panama City Beach and Panama City, Florida. 
So here I was in the early 2000s doing a morning show uh, at an FM radio station owned by Little Mom and Pop Corporation, Panama City Beach. And so Joe Scarborough was my congressman. I actually interviewed him one time. And uh, you'd never know. He did a pretty good job of masquerading as a conservative Republican. But I guess the money was better going with MSNBC and pretending like you're a liberal. Frankly, I don't think he's a conservative or a liberal. It's just, you know, um, who's writing the checks. You know what I'm saying, Holmes? Anyway, I think it's, uh, isn't it the great one, Mark Levin, that calls his show The Morning Joke? So, uh, as I say, uh, Scarborough has some thoughts. I wouldn't put it that far. He's just reading from the uh, the same hymn book as all the rest of them. Anybody that writes an op-ed and suggests that Donald Trump has not put himself directly in the target of an obstruction charge is just fooling themselves and some very, very stupid, ill-informed readers. Anybody suggests one person. One person can't fool themselves. One person is a himself or herself, not a themselves. You'd think Scarborough would realize that. Maybe he's getting lazy here in his dotage, in his old age. Is he older than me? All right, now i got to look him up on Wikipedia because I don't remember. I do remember that he retired from a sweet gig, and that kind of shocked everybody. All right, Joe Scarborough. Oh, he's younger than me. Anyway, I don't care. Carl Bernstein. This Bernstein. Longtime Washington Post reporter. Um, he and Bob Woodward helped to take down the most popular president in American history, Richard Nixon. It was a setup. They are the kind of offenses uh, that would call for impeachment hearings. Maybe he's... Um, Reliving his past. Former CIA counterterrorism official Philip Mudd. This guy has said all kinds of insane things on television. Um, he's a bad guy. He said some pretty violent things. He is, my humble opinion, unbalanced. And now he's just getting gross. If someone walked in my office and said I was a subject of a multi-year criminal investigation led by former FBI Director Robert Mueller, I'd wet my pants. That's just stupid. I mean, Mueller was an empty suit and had been for many years. One more. One more for the road. Chris Matthews, who a few years ago abruptly quit his show on MSNBC. Mueller reminds me of the starfish which gets itself tightly around the clam and uses all its stuff to weaken and pry open the clam. Now, this is a battle to the death as far as the clam is concerned. If the starfish is able to open him even a little bit, he can get him open all the way, and that's it, of course, for the clam. He's the starfish's lunch. Interesting, the analogies they come up with that don't really age well, isn't it? Because that's not at all what happened. Okay, the uh, press versus the president. We did part one. We did part two. The editor of the Columbia Journalism Review, Kyle Pope, 
has an introduction to it now. He's the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review, and his short introduction is called Looking Back on the Coverage of Trump. He says, seven and a half years ago, journalism began a tortured dance with Donald Trump, the man who would be the country's 45th president, first dismissing him, then embracing him as a source of ratings and clicks, then going all in on efforts to catalog Trump as a threat to the country, also a great source of ratings and clicks. No narrative did more to shape Trump's relations with the press than Russiagate. The story, which included the Steele dossier and the Mueller report, among other totemic moments, I had to look that up, totemic, has something to do with shaping worldviews resulted in Pulitzer Prizes as well as embarrassing retractions and damaged careers. For Trump, the press's pursuit of the Russia story convinced him that any sort of normal relationship with the press was impossible. For the past year and a half, Columbia Journalism Review has been examining the American media's coverage of Trump and Russia in granular detail and what it means as the country enters a new political cycle. Investigative reporter Jeff Gerth interviewed dozens of people at the center of the story, editors and reporters, Trump himself, others in his orbit. The result is an encyclopedic look at one of the most consequential moments in American media history. Jeff Gerth's findings aren't always flattering, either for the press or for Trump and his team, Doubtless they'll be debated and maybe even used as ammunition in the ongoing media war being waged in the country. But they are important and worthy of deep reflection as the campaign for the presidency is about, once again, to begin. So, coming up straight ahead, we will have part three of the press versus the president, and part three is entitled A Contested Pulitzer, and that's coming up next. Hey, if you've tried to buy a car recently, you realize there's such a chip shortage, you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Auto comes in. Red River Auto is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom including your freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online, and they'll drive it to you, no matter where you are. Red River Auto wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. Red River Auto Group has perfected the online buying process. Just go to redriverauto.com and pick from hundreds of new and used vehicles. You can purchase your vehicle online if you have any questions. One of Red River's trained experts will help you through the process. Red River Auto makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom. The dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door no matter where you live in the continental U.S., RedRiverAuto.com. You will be glad you did. Now, you've probably heard by now, Our friend Mike Lindell has a passion 
to help everyone get the best sleep of your life. He didn't stop by simply creating my pillow, the best pillow ever. Mike also created the best bed sheets ever. They look great, they feel great, which means an even better night's sleep for me, which is crucial for my busy schedule. My wife and I just love sleeping on our Giza Dreams bed sheets. Now, Mike is offering the best deal on his Giza Dreams sheets. You get a set of Giza sheets for as low as $29.98. The first night you sleep on these sheets, you'll never want to sleep on anything else again. Mike is making a special offer for my listeners. You can get a set of Giza sheets for as low as $29.98 just by using promo code DWS. And right now, a set of pillowcases for only $9.98. In this economy, instead of buying a new bed, rejuvenate your bed with a MyPillow mattress topper for as low as $99.99. MyPillow also has blankets in a variety of sizes, colors, and styles like plush, waffle, or gossamer for as low as $29.98. Get huge discounts on duvets, quilts, down comforters, and so much more. Use that promo code DWS, and you'll get huge discounts on all MyPillow bedding, including MyPillow Giza Dreams sheets for just $29.98. Now, I'm wearing my new My Slippers moccasins, even as we speak. I had no idea slippers could feel this good. I also had no idea you'd go out in 15-degree weather wearing these My Slippers moccasins with no socks on, and your feet not get cold. They're amazing. Right now, save up to $90 on my slippers, slip-ons, and moccasins, marked down to just $49.98 by using promo code DWS. Not only that, Mike is having the biggest closeout sale ever on his sandals and slides for as low as $19.98. What makes my slippers different is Mike's exclusive four-layer design that you're not going to find in any other slippers. My slippers patented layers make them ultra comfortable, extremely durable, and they help reduce stress on your feet. Wear them anytime, anywhere. Just use promo code DWS. Now remember, that does not stand for washed up Democrat politician Debbie Wasserman Schultz. No, 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 no. The promo code DWS stands for Doc Washburn Show. So whatever you're buying at mypillow.com or MyStore.com, Mike's other website. Make sure you use DWS. Quantities are extremely limited at these amazing prices, so please order today from MyPillow.com or MyStore.com. Use promo code DWS. All right, the press versus the president, part three, Jeff Girth. Title of the chapter is A Contested Pulitzer. Trump's firing of Jim Comey on May 9th, 2017 was nothing like his hit TV show, The Apprentice. The boss couldn't move on to the next episode, nor would the ousted employee quietly walk away. The firestorm that erupted in the aftermath of Comey being axed required a do-over, in part because shifting White House explanations for his dismissal. So, Trump sat down two days later for an interview with Lester Holt, nightly news anchor for NBC. But instead of tamping down the controversy, it fanned the Russia flames for the media. A tweet from the show on May 11th set the narrative for the Lester Holt NBC interview. The tweet said, Trump on firing Comey, quote, I said, you know, 
This Russia thing with Trump and Russia is a made-up story, unquote. Those few words, by suggesting Comey's firing was aimed at getting the FBI inquiry off his back, provided fresh ammunition to anti-Trumpers. The full interview, which was available online, presented a more nuanced story and appeared to reflect what his advisors told him. Firing Comey would prolong, not end, the investigation. Trump told Lester Holt soon after the controversial words that the firing, quote, might even lengthen out the investigation, unquote. And he expected the FBI to, quote, continue the investigation to do it properly and to get to the bottom, unquote. The media focused, though, on the Russia thing, quote. The New York Times did five stories over the next week citing the Russia thing remarks, but leaving out the fuller context. Washington Post and CNN, by comparison, included additional language in their first day story. The White House was upset and repeatedly asked reporters to look at the full transcript, according to a former Trump aide and two reporters. On the heels of the NBC interview came a leak of Jim Comey's notes of private conversations with Trump, including one at a dinner in January where Trump was said to have asked the FBI director to pledge loyalty to him. The New York Times piece reported that the inquiry into Trump and Russia, quote, has since gained momentum as investigators have developed new evidence and leads, unquote. Comey, once out of office, had his internal memos leaked to the New York Times, hoping that might help prompt the appointment of a special counsel. That's what he testified to Congress a few weeks later. At the same hearing, he criticized the New York Times story of February 14th, one of whose authors was Michael Schmidt, the reporter who received Comey's leaked memos. On June 8th, at a Senate hearing, Comey was asked whether the Times story was almost entirely wrong, and he answered yes. He told the senator they were correct when they said he had surveyed the intelligence community after the article came out to see whether you were missing something. Comey also agreed he later told senators in a closed briefing shortly after the New York Times piece was published, quote, I don't know where this is coming from, but this is not the case, unquote. Finally, in his own voice, Comey testified that the story, quote, in the main, it was not true, unquote. But, uh, but those are his notes, though. Man, this is getting deep. But I digress. Back at the Washington Bureau, New York Times journalists were uncomfortable but confident as captured by a filmmaker documenting the paper's Russia coverage. Susan Bomeller, the bureau chief for the Washington Bureau of the New York Times, told colleagues back in New York, the FBI won't even tell us what's wrong with the story, so we don't know what Comey's talking about. Mazzetti, a reporter on the original story, remarks how uncomfortable it is to have the former FBI director challenging aspects of our story because it became a way to bludgeon the press and discredit our reporting. Still, he added, we're very confident of the story after going back to, quote, our sources, unquote. They told him, quote, we were solid, unquote. In response to queries by Eric Wimple, the media reporter for the Washington Post, 
who questioned many Russia-related dossier stories. The New York Times said a review, found no evidence that any prior reporting was inaccurate, but if more information is provided by the FBI, we would review that as well. The detailed criticism by Peter Strzok of the 2017 piece was released three years later, 2020. The New York Times reported on it on page 14 and quoted its own spokeswoman, Eileen Murphy, as saying, we stand by our reporting. That's crazy. That's wild that Peter Strzok would have challenged because, you know, I mean, he comes, he's always come across as a dyed in the wool, wool uh, Democrat liberal partisan. Anyway, despite the criticism from James Comey, the New York Times continued to aggressively report on Trump and Russia. July 9th, 2017, the paper landed a major scoop about a meeting in 2016 between Donald Trump Jr. and a Russian lawyer, Natalia Veselnitskaya, that rekindled the collusion narrative. The meeting took place June 2016, the Trump Tower, and it was prompted by an email from a British public relations agent acting on behalf of the son of a Russian businessman. The message promised incriminating information from the Russian government on Hillary Clinton. Trump's son was eager to receive the dirt. He replied, I love it. The New York Times obtained the material before it was turned over to Robert Mueller. Hope Hicks, Trump's communications aide, told Trump the emails looked really bad and the reaction to them would be massive, but the president initially directed her to leave it alone, according to Robert Mueller's final report. Then the report goes on. Trump dictated a statement to Hope Hicks that left out the derogatory information promised in the emails. For the New York Times, Trump's mess was a pot of gold. Two of the New York Times stories about the meeting and the emails were part of its winning Pulitzer Prize package. In the end, the I love it email from Donald Trump Jr. showed a receptiveness by Trump's world to dirt from Russia. But the meeting itself was a flop, according to Barry Meyer, a former New York Times reporter in his book about the Trump dossier entitled Spooked. Ironically, the only information given to the Trump delegation at the meeting was a memo prepared by Fusion GPS, the sponsor of the Steele dossier, about some obscure Hillary Clinton donors mixed up in Russian business dealings. It turns out Fusion GPS had worked for American lawyers representing a Russian real estate company, and Veselnitskaya was their Russian lawyer. A week after the Trump Tower story, the president conducted a serendipitous interview with three New York Times reporters, including Schmidt, who asked if James Comey's sharing of the dossier with Trump before his inauguration was leverage. Trump, repli- Trump replied, yeah, I think so, in retrospect. After the, office, after the Oval Office sit-down, an aide, worried about the possibility of repercussions from an impromptu interview, sought Trump's reaction. The aide who requested anonymity recalled him saying, I loved that. It was better than therapy. I've never done therapy, but this is better. Trump would later tell me it was possible, he said what the aide remembered, but he didn't recall it. But he added, I'll often sit down with hostile press just to see if it's possible to get them to write the truth. 
it almost never works. I do it almost as a chess game. That summer, the pieces on Mueller's chessboard were quietly shifting. By August of 2017, the collusion investigation had not panned out. According to 2020 testimony by Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general who oversaw Robert Mueller's investigation. Some reporters, like Schmidt, shifted gears too, focusing instead on possible obstruction. By late October 2017, the Republican-led House Intelligence Committee had obtained banking records showing Fusion GPS's client for the dossier was Mark Elias, the lawyer for the Hillary Clinton campaign and the DNC. The Washington Post broke the story, citing people familiar with the matter. Ken Vogel, New York Times reporter, quickly tweeted out that Mark Elias had pushed back vigorously when Vogel had tried to report the story, telling the reporter he was wrong. Mark Elias, of course, did not respond to an email seeking comment for this story. A few weeks later, Robert Mueller reached a plea agreement with Michael Flynn, who left the job of National Security Advisor just a few weeks after Trump took office over his recollections of his transition contacts with the Russian ambassador. In the deal, Flynn pleaded guilty on December 1, 2017, to lying to the FBI about those conversations. Flynn's guilty plea, along with those of others in the Trump orbit, served an important media role. Vindicating the views of those in the press who suspected a wider conspiracy and undercutting the pushback from those, some of them who even would become Trump critics, that the coverage had gone too far. Flynn later tried to withdraw his plea after a Justice Department review found exculpatory evidence, including the fact that the lead agent on his case wanted to shut it down in early January but was overruled by higher-ups. The Justice Department then moved to have the charges dismissed, but a federal judge wanted to know more, so Flynn was pardoned by Trump. Well, no, 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 no. It wasn't so much that the federal judge wanted to know more. It was that the federal judge refused to allow the Justice Department to drop charges. So the federal judge was acting outside of his authority. Now, it wasn't that he wanted to know more. It was that he wanted to punish a Trump associate. That's what that was about. I'll just tell you right now. Anyway, the day after Flynn appeared in court, the New York Times reported that Peter Strzok, the FBI's manager of the Russia inquiry, had been removed months earlier by Mueller over possible anti-Trump texts. The story described Peter Strzok, who, uh, who was an anonymous source for the paper, as one of the most experienced and trusted investigators. The New York Times reported that Strzok was transferred back to the FBI because he reacted to news events in ways that could appear critical of Mr. Trump, according to unnamed people briefed on the case. Hundreds of Peter Strzok's texts later became public. Many were quite critical of Trump and his supporters. For example, one from before the election had Peter Strzok responding to whether Trump would ever become president with this reply, no, no, he won't. We'll stop it. Peter Strzok, who was fired by the FBI in 2018, testified that his personal beliefs did not affect his official actions. And in 2019, the Justice Department's inspector general said he failed 
to find documentary or testimonial evidence that political bias or improper motivation influenced the opening of the investigation, which was done by Peter Strzok. Yeah, yeah, you can't find what you're not looking for. I'll just say that, but I digress. The New York Times and other outlets reported on Peter Strzok's anti-Trump messages, though they received the most attention on outlets like Fox News Channel. Yeah, the New York Times and other outlets probably buried it. The Times did not report on all of Peter Strzok's texts, including one that would come out in a few weeks and might have helped readers better understand why Mueller failed to bring any criminal charges involving collusion or conspiracy with Russia. But before that omission, the New York Times exposed another piece of the FBI's Russia puzzle. The paper landed a major story at the end of the year in time to be included in its Pulitzer package that ultimately shared the prize for national reporting. The piece claimed to solve what the New York Times called one of the lingering mysteries of the past year by focusing on a critical question, what prompted the FBI in late July 2016 to open a counterintelligence investigation into the Trump campaign? And we will pick up on that in mere moments. So don't go anywhere. Look, are you tired of a cell phone bill that is way too high every month? A cell phone bill, you know, is going to uh, liberal left-wing cell phone carriers that give a lot of money to causes that you would find to be just horrible. Have you heard that DirecTV, which is owned by AT&T, last year got rid of One American News, this year got rid of Newsmax? Look, Patriot Mobile is America's only Christian conservative wireless carrier. Now more than ever, it's important to band together and support companies that share our conservative values. Patriot Mobile donates a portion of every dollar earned to organizations that fight for causes you care about. Patriot Mobile has exceptional nationwide coverage and uses the same towers the main carriers use. And they have a coverage guarantee. They'll tell you all about it. Patriot Mobile has plans to fit any budget, along with great discounts for our veteran and first responder heroes, as well as multi-line users. Hey, I'm saving a lot of money with Patriot Mobile myself. When you switch to Patriot Mobile, you're shifting your support from the leftist progressive agendas of Big Mobile to the Christian conservative causes of Patriot Mobile. When you become a Patriot Mobile member, your dollars are helping to fund our God-given rights to freedom. A portion of every dollar they earn is given back to the causes that support organizations that fight for First Amendment religious freedom, freedom of speech, Second Amendment right to bear arms, sanctity of life, and the needs of our veterans and first responders. Switching is easy. Just do what I did. Go to PatriotMobile.com or call their U.S.-based customer service team at 972-PATRIOT and make sure you use promo code DOC, that's D-O-C, for free activation. All right, let me tell you about the best-kept secret in American health care. Something that might really be able to help you out. Are you having 
problems with sinuses and allergies? Are you experiencing dizziness or vertigo? What about fibromyalgia? Problems with your blood sugar, eczema, psoriasis, even migraines. The Arkansas Upper Cervical Center might be able to help you, even if you're not in Arkansas. Let me tell you how. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, the C1, which only weighs 2 ounces. So it's really easy for that atlas bone to get out of alignment. And if it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain. When that happens, your central nervous system isn't able to communicate with the rest of your body as it's designed to do. I had severe hay fever for five or six weeks every spring all my life. When I got my atlas adjusted, the hay fever went away, and it's never come back. I had serious migraines year-round all my life. When I got my atlas adjusted, the migraines went away too, and they're gone for good. Again, if you're suffering from sinus conditions, allergies, vertigo, fibromyalgia, problems with your blood sugar, eczema, psoriasis, migraines, do yourself a favor. Call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center, 501-279-2009, for a free consultation. They have helped me, they've helped my wife, and they've helped so many people we know. Please call them to see if they can help you. That number again for your free consultation is 501-279-2009. Or just go to their website, turnmypoweron.com. Now, I've been talking about how the world is going crazy with supply chain issues, record-setting inflation and sky-high gas prices, and woke corporations that stand against everything we believe in. We all know how the big box stores were allowed to stay open all during the pandemic, while so many little guys, small business owners, regular people were forced to close. The wealthiest people on earth became better off, while mom-and-pop businesses suffered. The question is... What are we willing to do about it? What can we do about it? How can our voices be heard? Well, we can make a difference by voting with our dollars. Why continue shopping at big box stores if you can get the items you need from a family-owned company? Now, finally, we can shop factory direct at a family-owned, made-in-America manufacturer. SwitchToAmerica.com is helping Americans walk away from the big box conglomerates. That's why Switch to America was created, with regular folks like you and me in mind. One of the best ways to get around this crazy inflation is to shop with family-owned companies that put their customers first rather than shareholders and corporate executives. A lot of Patriot influencers have come on board. I'm inviting you to join with fellow Patriots to cut off the cash flow of the big woke corporations that are trying to destroy our country. We're done with the woke globalist operation against humanity. Each of us can take market share away from these businesses that have enjoyed unfair advantages. We can choose to help each other by shopping family-owned, made in America. Join with over 2 million monthly shoppers that have already made the switch. Let's start voting with our dollars to make sure our purchases are supporting companies that promote freedom. And now, an even more exciting addition is fresh American-raised beef. This beef is raised in the mountains of Montana near the Yellowstone, and it's known as Never Ever. Never 
has the animal ever been exposed to antibiotics, hormones, or vaccines. This prime or high-choice beef is shipped directly to your door. Pricing and availability is exclusive only to our members, and it isn't shipped anywhere else in the world. SwitchToAmerica.com is dedicated to offering family-owned alternatives for items we buy on a regular basis. Just go to SwitchToAmerica.com. When it asks how you heard about us, click on my name, Doc Washburn, plug in your info, and I'll have one of my guys contact you. That's SwitchToAmerica.com. All right, we left off with the New York Times doing a piece asking the question. They're trying to solve one of the lingering mysteries of the past year by focusing on a critical question, what prompted the FBI in late July 2016 to open a counterintelligence investigation into the Trump campaign. The answer, the piece went on, citing anonymous sources, wasn't the sensational, unsubstantiated dossier, but, quote, first-hand information from one of America's closest allies that so alarmed, unquote, the FBI. The three characters in this drama are a 28-year-old campaign volunteer on energy issues, an Australian diplomat, and a Maltese professor living in the U.K. Each has disputed aspects of what transpired. The events at issue boil down to a suggestion from the Trump aide, George Papadopoulos, relayed to the diplomat, Alexander Downer, at a London wine bar that traces back to another suggestion Papadopoulos heard a few weeks earlier from Joseph Mifsud, the academic from Malta, about the Russians allegedly having dirt on Hillary Clinton involving emails. Papadopoulos, two months before the New York Times article, had pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI about some of the details of his meeting with Joseph Mifsud, including the date of the meeting and his downplaying of what he understood were Mifsud's substantial connections to high-level Russian government officials. Now, let me go back to Michael Flynn for a second. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to digress here for a second. Let me go back to Flynn. Do you realize that if they want to get you, they will prosecute you for misremembering something? That's how they sent one of uh, George W. Bush's closest advisors, a guy named Scooter Libby, to jail. He misremembered a telephone conversation that there was no underlying crime about. Do you realize that? Yeah. He was chief of staff to Vice President Dick Cheney. He was national security advisor to Vice President Dick Cheney. And they nailed him on misremembering a telephone conversation which was unrelated to a crime. They nailed Flynn on supposedly getting some facts wrong because they call that line to the FBI. So that's how they that's how they go for you, man. It's dastardly what they do to people. It really is. 
Papadopoulos had tried unsuccessfully to broker meetings for the campaign with Russia before he disappeared in November. Mifsud gave interviews to journalists from Italy, the U.S., and Britain, denying he had worked for the Kremlin or with the Kremlin. The New York Times story contained no denials by Mifsud, though the papal though the paper said in its statement that it reached out to him on multiple occasions. Other papers writing about Mifsud, such as the Washington Post, would quote his denials to reporters before he disappeared. It turned out that early on, the FBI checked with another government agency, presumed to be the CIA, and found no derogatory information on Joseph Mifsud, according to a subsequent report by the Inspector General of the Justice Department. And Mifsud told the FBI in early 2017 during an interview in Washington that he had no advanced knowledge of the DNC hacks and, quote, did not make any offers or proffer any information to Papadopoulos who must have misunderstood their conversation, unquote, according to FBI documents. Mifsud was never charged with lying to the FBI. Alexander Downer later tipped off the U.S. about his London conversation and the FBI two days later opened an investigation named Crossfire Hurricane based on his tip. The document authorizing the inquiry reads, this investigation is being opened to determine whether individuals associated with the Trump campaign are witting of and or coordinating activities with the government of Russia. The short document also spelled out the lack of direct evidence. It said that Papadopoulos had suggested the Trump team had received some kind of suggestion from Russia. Now, now, now let's, let's, let's put this into perspective. Let's think about this for a moment. There's all kinds of damning evidence right now that China has compromised Joe Biden and his son Hunter. There's all kinds of damning evidence right now. They're being blackmailed. I mean, for goodness sakes, within the last 24 hours of me doing this podcast right here, China sent a military spy balloon over our ICBM locations in Montana, and our military is under orders not to shoot it down. But Nobody's brought charges against good old Dementia Joe or his son Hunter the Crackhead, that's for sure. But I digress. Peter Strzok, who wrote and approved... The opening communication for the Crossfire Hurricane investigation described how he viewed it in an interview with me. Again, this is Jeff Gerth, longtime reporter who wrote the article. Here's a quote from Peter Strzok. There never was a case opened on the Trump campaign. It was opened to identify whoever might have received the Russian offer. Okay? In his 2020 memoir, Compromised, the former FBI official, Peter Strzok, writes that interviewing the source, Alexander Downer, was crucial to getting to the bottom of the allegations, but Andrew McCabe, the second-ranking FBI official, directed the case be opened immediately. So the interview came days later. According to a 2022 memoir by William Barr, former attorney general under Trump, Downer was never able to provide better clarity to the quite opaque chat at the wine bar. Peter Strzok said William Barr's account is inaccurate, 
claiming in an interview that Alexander Downer's conversations, first with Papadopoulos and later with him, were very clear and very detailed. Andrew McCabe was asked in a congressional hearing December 2017, two weeks before the New York Times article disclosing the opening of the inquiry, why the surveillance was done on Carter Page and not on George Papadopoulos. His reply? He said the Papadopoulos comment didn't particularly indicate that he was the person that had had, that was interacting with the Russians. McCabe's testimony would not become public until much later. William Barr's memoir, entitled irreverently, One Damn Thing After Another, describes the opening of the investigation as a travesty. This is the Crossfire Hurricane investigation into the Trump campaign in 2016. Describe the opening of that investigation as a travesty because it amounted to a throwaway comment in a wine bar that in the end amounted to a suggestion of a suggestion. Now, I believe Barr's telling the truth on that, and I believe Strzok is not. Anyway, December 2017, Trump gave an end-of-the-year interview to Schmidt of the New York Times at Mar-a-Lago. He told the paper the Mueller inquiry made the United States look very bad. He repeated the words, no collusion, more than a dozen times. Schmidt, speaking on camera to the film crew, documenting the paper's pursuit of the story, offered this assessment of Trump, quote, he may be demented, but he's very transparent, unquote. Demented. Hmm. wonder where that came from. On January 24th, more Peter Strzok texts were released. Now we're at January 24th, 2018. One was written shortly after Mueller's appointment. The man leading the FBI inquiry was weighing whether to join him. Strzok was hesitant, he wrote, because, quote, there's no big there there, unquote. Oh, boy. So he already knows. They're wasting money and time. Other FBI documents released in 2020 reflect the same assessment. The inquiry into possible ties between the campaign and Russia, according to one of the agents involved in the case, seemed to be winding down by January 2018. Peter Strzok's message was cited dozens of times in news stories, including the lead of an article in the Wall Street Journal, And further down in a piece by the Washington Post, the New York Times, however, did not mention the message in a story that day or in the coming years. Now, remember, the guy writing this worked for the New York Times for 29 years. I'm I'm just I'm just I'm just telling you a former New York Times journalist who was involved in the Russia coverage said we should have run it. In its statement, the New York Times said it had reported on the matter thoroughly and in line with our editorial standards. Well, of course, their editorial standards are covering for the deep state. Washington Journal, in its piece, noted Peter Strzok's skepticism about the burgeoning investigation. Gerard Baker, who was the Wall Street Journal's top editor at the time, said in an email that he was initially skeptical but completely open-minded about the Russian collusion story in light of Trump's evident sympathy for Putin and the slightly shady background of Manafort, the former campaign chairman. In the end, Baker, now an editor-at-large for the paper, 
says he found the performance by the media in the Trump-Russia saga, for the most part, to be among the most disturbing, dishonest, and tendentious I've ever seen. Uh, Yeah, I, I think I agree with him. The day after the Peter Strzok text release, the New York Times landed another scoop co-authored by Schmidt, who had developed a relationship with White House counsel Don McGahn, who was already cooperating at Trump's request with the special counsel. The story said Trump had ordered Mueller fired shortly after his appointment, but ultimately backed down after the White House counsel threatened to resign rather than carry out the directive. Trump called the piece fake news, which had become his go-to phrase to attack stories he didn't like. White House counsel Dom again did not return an email from me seeking an interview. He told the special counsel he had not told Trump of his plan to resign. But according to the final Mueller report, said that the story was otherwise accurate. Dom again also told investigators that he never saw Mr. Trump go beyond his legal authorities, according to a subsequent piece in the New York Times. Schmidt, in a 2020 book, acknowledged that the January 2018 piece left the impression, though it didn't explicitly state, that McGahn's threat to resign had been delivered directly to Trump. Meanwhile, one year into Trump's presidency, the other, investig- the other investigations and the possible collusion with the Russians were proceeding quietly in Congress. But... The partisan divide over the issue came to the fore in February 2018 when the GOP-led House Intelligence Panel released a memo of some preliminary findings about what it considered to be FBI abuses of the secret surveillance court to investigate Carter Page. The memo asserted that the dossier formed an essential part of the surveillance warrant used against Carter Page in the FISA court and was minimally corroborated by the time of some of the renewals. In other words, You're doing this based on nothing but this fake dossier. At the New York Times, the coverage of the GOP memo was skeptical, while a dueling memo a few weeks later from the ranking Democrat on the committee was portrayed more favorably. The New York Times, at the start of the piece about the Republican memo, called it politically charged also noted in the next sentence how it outraged Democrats and did not quote the memo's allegation of the dossier's essential role in the surveillance. The same day, in a separate piece, the New York Times again called the Republican memo politically charged and quoted the scathing criticism by Democrats. Later that month, the Democrats released their own memo. It said the surveillance warrant, quote, made only narrow use of information from steel sources, unquote. Well, they knew that wasn't true. The New York Times story called it a forceful rebuttal to Trump's complaints about the FBI's inquiry. In the end, the allegations of abuse by Nunes, Devin Nunes, head of the House Intelligence Committee, were confirmed in 2019 when the Inspector General released a report that was a scathing critique. That was a scathing critique of the FBI, as the New York Times told readers at the time. In a statement to Columbia Journalism Review, the New York Times said, we stand behind the publication of the story, referring to its reporting on the Nunes memo. So what does that mean? That means the New York Times is saying, we lied, you caught us, we know we lied, you know we lied, we know you know we lied, and we don't care.
We stand by the publication of the story. We stand by reporting. Doesn't matter if you prove we lied. But I digress. In February 2018, the New York Times and Washington Post shared a George Polk Award for uncovering connections between Trump officials and well-connected Russians, which triggered the investigation by Robert Mueller III. One of the articles in the New York Times package of 12 submitted for the prize was a February 2017 piece that had been strongly faulted even by Jim Comey and the FBI, according to a list provided by Polk to the Washington Times, the paper wrote a few weeks later. The administrator of the awards, John Darnton, a former New York Times correspondent, didn't deny the accuracy of the Washington Times article, but in an email to me wrote that we don't go into the details of the submissions. In other words, if you're on the team, we don't care if you lie. But I digress. A few days later, a prize-winning journalist writing for the New Yorker magazine, Jane Mayer, wrote a lengthy piece about Christopher Steele and his work. Then, she went on Rachel Maddow's show on MSNBC to note how the dossier, quote, was looking better and better every day, more and more credible. But somebody like Mueller, unquote, was the best bet to, quote, really nail down a lot of the things that you need to know, unquote. Guess what? Guess what the article says then? Jane Mayer. Prize-winning journalist for the New Yorker magazine who went on Rachel Maddow's show and said all that, declined to comment for the record through the Columbia Journalism Review. How about that? I'm stunned. I'm shocked. Shocked, I tell you. In April, the winners of the most prestigious award in journalism, the Pulitzer Prize, were announced. Once again, the Washington Post and New York Times shared an award for reporting on Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election and his connection to the Trump campaign, the president-elect's transition team, and his eventual administration. The Times package did not include the disputed piece that was part of the Polk submission. Now, when they say the Polk submission, again, they're talking about the George Polk Award. I, I had to go back and check. Dean Bequette, then executive editor of the New York Times, told the Times Newsroom, the day of the announcement, I think the Pulitzers make a statement. He compared the recent attacks against the paper to criticism of its coverage of civil rights in the Vietnam War back in the 60s and 70s. But even though the attacks hurt us, he said, the New York Times is still here. Uh, Barron declined to be interviewed, but in an email to me, defended the Washington Post coverage, writing that, quote, the evidence showed that Russia intervened in the election that the Trump campaign was aware of it, welcomed it, and never alerted law enforcement or intelligence agencies to it, and reporting showed that Trump sought to impede the investigation into it, unquote. So, they're still lying. They're still lying. Who is this Barron guy again? I mean, he's at the, uh, he's at the Washington Post. I'm sorry, I, I, I got to double check. See, what uh, Jeff Girth does sometimes is if he has somebody's name like in part one or part two, um, he'll mention them again in part three without reminding you who it is. 
and I'm do, only doing one part a day. Marty Barron, executive editor of the Washington Post at the time, is saying, hey, we had the evidence. The evidence was all there. But he's, he's lying. You didn't. It's not. Even Mueller couldn't find anything. Washington Post spokesperson in September 2022 cited the Pulitzer Award in a brief general statement responding to a list of questions I submitted to Busby. So Sally Busby replaced Sandy Barron at the Washington Post. Okay, now I got it. Pardon me, not Sandy Barron, Marty Barron, executive editor. Okay, I got it. I got it. Sorry for the confusion there. A Washington Post spokesman in September 2022 cited the Pulitzer Award in a brief general statement responding to a list of questions I submitted to Ms. Busby. The statement said the paper, quote, was proud of our coverage of the investigation into Russia's interference in the 2016 campaign, including our stories that were awarded the Pulitzer Prize for furthering the nation's understanding of this consequential period. We approached this line of coverage with care and a great sense of responsibility on the few occasions in which new information emerged that caused us to reexamine past reporting. We did so forthrightly. Yeah, that's just not true. They lied. They know they lied. We know they lied. And they know we know. And they don't care. But I digress. The Pulitzer Awards became the subject of criticism most famously from Trump himself, but also from other journalists. One of those was Tom Kuntz, who worked for 28 years at the New York Times and now runs Real Clear Investigations, a nonprofit online news site that has featured articles critical of the Russia coverage by writers of varying political orientation, including Aaron Matei and Paul Sperry. Matei would later win the Izzy Award from Ithaca College, named after the left-leaning journalist I.F. Stone for his stories in The Nation, quote, that exposed the hollowness and hyperbole of the so-called Russiagate scandal, unquote. Wow, because The Nation is pretty left-leaning itself. In November 2021, Trump threatened to sue the Pulitzer Board after the indictment of the dossier's main collector. In short order, the Washington Post retracted a significant section of an article about the dossier. Busby gave a statement to Just the News, an online outlet. That's um, John Solomon's outlet, justthenews.com. Defending the Washington Post's award-winning coverage and pointing out accurately that the corrected article was not part of the award submission. Busby went on to note, like the New York Times, that the paper's disclosure, the Washington Post's disclosure, of contacts between certain members of Trump's administration and Russian officials had been affirmed by the Mueller report. Okay, but no laws were broken. They didn't indict anybody. In 2022, the Pulitzer Board announced it had commissioned two independent reviews of the 2018 awards to the Washington Post and New York Times that both found that no passages or headlines, contentions or assertions, and any of the winning submissions were discredited by facts that emerged subsequent to the conferral of the prizes, so the awards stand. That's just not true. They all circle the wagons, don't they? No, 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 no. Look, after Dan Rather got fired, people like uh, Peter Jennings were talking about what a great guy he was. On Tom Brokaw, too. The board did not disclose the identity of the reviewers or post their actual findings. 
In December, Trump made his threat to sue the Pulitzer Board a reality. He filed a defamation lawsuit against the board's members in Okeechobee County, Florida. I think that's a great place to file it, by the way. The New York Times, in a statement to Columbia Journalism Review, referenced the Pulitzer Board's upholding of the award, substantiation by Mueller's report and an inquiry by the Senate Intelligence Panel, and the paper's adherence to its own rigorous standards. Ha! 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 Rigorous standards. Here's the quote. The mission and responsibility of the New York Times is to report thoroughly and impartially on matters of newsworthy importance. The foreign manipulation of the 2016 elections was among the most consequential and unprecedented in United States history. We reported on them with teams of people who thoroughly pursued credible claims, fact-checked, edited, and ultimately produced groundbreaking journalism that was proven true and true again. Bald-faced lie. But I digress. Trump, in a statement, trashed the board's decision to stand by the award, criticized the veil of secrecy, and lumped the decision in with the House panel looking into the events of January 6th, saying he would continue to right the wrong he saw in each inquiry. The month after the Pulitzers were announced, Showtime aired the four-part documentary film about the New York Times' pursuit of the Russia story, The Fourth Estate. Other films were in the works, including a few that would feature Christopher Steele's work and efforts by reporters to delve into the Russia story. Some that involved Christopher Steele were dropped, according to journalists familiar with them, while Steele declined to comment, citing contractual obligations. Oh, it's a payoff. Okay. I mean, that's what it looks like. One stall project involved the Washington Post and Robert Redford's production company. According to journalists familiar with the project, including Intus, the former Post reporter. They say the Post dropped out of the project in 2021. A Post spokesperson who would not talk on the record said it was correct that the Post had backed out some time ago, but declined to discuss the proposed project. An email to the Redford-founded Sundance Institute seeking comment went unanswered. Wow, 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 wow. Okay, that's the end of Chapter 3, but let me just share with you a little note on disclosure here from Jeff Gerth at the end of it. He says, in 2015-2016, I was a senior reporter at ProPublica, There, I reported on Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, and Russian oligarchs, among other subjects. I helped ProPublica decide whether to collaborate with a book that was critical of the Clintons' involvement with Russia. The arrangement didn't happen. Another of the projects I worked on, also involving Clinton, was published in the Washington Post in 2016, where I shared a byline. Some of my other Clinton-related work was used in 2016 articles, appearing in the New York Times, my employer between 1976 and 2005, but without my byline. Initially, the Times sought my assistance on a story about Hillary's handling of Bill Clinton's infidelity. Subsequently, I approached the paper on my own about the Clinton Family Foundation. In both cases, I interacted with reporters and editors, but was not involved in the writing or editing of the stories that used my reporting. During the second interaction, I expressed disappointment to one of the Times reporters about the final result. I left ProPublica December 2016. That month, I was approached by one of the co-founders of Fusion GPS, 
who sounded me out about joining a Trump-related project the firm was contemplating. The discussion did not lead to any collaboration. I had previously interacted with Fusion related to my reporting on Russian oligarchs. In the 2017-2018 academic year, I was a non-resident fellow and the investigative reporting program affiliated with the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California, Berkeley. Again, I told you, this guy's really not the conservative. He's, you know, mainstream media reporter. says, there, one of my projects involved looking into the dossier as part of preliminary research for a 2020 film, the investigative reporting program, helped produce for HBO on Russian meddling. I was not on the film's credits. Nobody certainly is covering all the bases, that's for sure. He says, the Columbia Journalism Review, these stories have been edited by Kyle Pope, its editor and publisher. Kyle's wife, Kate Kelly, is a reporter for the Washington Bureau of the New York Times. Columbia Journalism Review's former board chair was Steve Adler, formerly the editor-in-chief of Reuters. Its current board chair is Rebecca Blumenstein, a former deputy managing editor of the New York Times, who recently became president of editorial for NBC News. It is amazing to me that this is coming out in the Columbia Journalism Review of all places. You know what time it is, boys and girls? It's time to say, hit it, Brian. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. Brought to you by Red River Auto. Red River Auto, big gold car dealership in the middle of the USA, the Belize and Freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice online the way you want to. Have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental USA. Now, today's Tweet of the Day. I had something to do with. It was in the middle of a long conversation. This woman was responding to Christians saying the flood is a myth. No babies or people or animals died. And she has a um, a quote from some guy that I've never heard of who said back when the Bible was written, then edited, then rewritten, then rewritten, then re-edited, then translated from dead languages, then retranslated, then edited, then rewritten, then given to kings for them to take their favorite parts, then rewritten, then re-rewritten, then translated again, then given to the Pope for him to approve, then rewritten, then edited again, then re-re-re-re-rewritten again, all based on stories that were told orally 30 to 90 years after they happened to people who didn't know how to write, so... And of course, I had to respond to that. So I said, every word of that is a lie. The New Testament is the most historically authenticated work of antiquity. So the woman said, LOL, authenticated by who? Probably should have said whom. I said, historians believe Homer wrote the Odyssey and the Iliad, even though the earliest manuscripts are from 900 years later. The earliest existing manuscripts of the New Testament are from within a couple of generations, and there are many from within the first two centuries. No other work of antiquity comes close. 
There are also contemporaneous non-Christian historians like Josephus and Pliny, P-L-I-N-Y, who attested to the historicity of Jesus, and then, of course, the historical record of Jesus' apostles willingly accepting death as martyrs rather than denying him. The idea of 12 of them, the idea all 12 of them would have willingly died for something they knew was a lie is unreasonable. I understand the desire to hope it's not true, but good luck trying to find an ancient historian who doubted the historicity of Jesus. We could, go, we could do a long thread on the writings of the early fathers, the first three generations of disciples of the apostles. They quoted most of the New Testament in their works. We could also do another long thread on how archaeologists continue to confirm the historicity, the historicity of the Old and New Testaments. But here's the thing. There is no significant difference between the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts of a couple of millennia ago and the Bible we have today. The quote you tweeted is wishful thinking. It's all made up, but by all means, don't take my word for it. You can look it up yourself. It shouldn't be hard to figure out which one of us is lying. By the way, the God who created the universe is also able to protect his word, the Bible, from being corrupted. Your friend's claim is based on unbelief, not evidence. Now, I'll just say something. Uh, we are told in the New Testament to do the works of an evangelist. Now, I certainly don't think I have the gift of evangelism. But it doesn't just say, those of you who have the gift of evangelism do the work of an evangelist. So if I bump into an opportunity, then I should take it. So I did. And that's what that is all about. Don't hide your lamp under a bushel. You've been listening to episode 337 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn Show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempier X. And that's the way it is. Thursday, February 2nd, 2023.